The human brain is incredible, right? It's incredible. It's complex. It's multifaceted. It is dynamic. And yet, it's also simple. It's made up of soft tissue, blood, water, cells. It's a simple organ. But here's the thing that we can all attest to in both the complexity of the mind and the simplicity of the mind. No matter our IQ, here's, here's what we can attest to. The mind is prone to wander. I mean, think about the, the amount that we daydream on a given day. Or think about the shortening attention span of our daily lives. It seems that we have more and more of a difficult time focusing. We have more and more of a difficult time enduring activities like listening, reading, working, or whatever. We find ourselves often disoriented and in a fog. The mind wanders like a car without a driver, like a sheep without a shepherd. We are prone to wander mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. And we need guidance. We need guidance. And what does this have to do with First Peter in our text this morning? Everything. Everything. So turn in your Bible, if you would, to First Peter. First Peter. If you go to the end of your Bible to the book of Revelation, and you hang a left, a handful of books, you will safely arrive at the letter of 1 Peter. This uh, morning, we're going to be returning to this occasional sermon series here in this book. If you don't have a Bible, please grab one from under uh, a seat near you. You could find 1 Peter on page 953. 953. We're going to be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This morning, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. This is God's good and faithful word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. This is God's word. I'm going to say he is worthy to be praised. It would be great if you would respond. He is worthy to be praised. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Open our hearts and our minds now to your word. Cause us to behold the glory of your son, Jesus. And may the meditations of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in his name that we pray, amen. Well, before we walk through these four verses, let me take a moment to reorient ourselves to the letter just, just briefly. In chapters one through four, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has been encouraging Christians in Asia Minor and abroad, Christians of yesterday and Christians of today, to stand firm in the faith and to walk heavenward together with a living, new, enduring, and present hope. And in summary, Peter has called the church to remember who we are in Christ, elect exiles, pilgrims, who have been saved, redeemed by grace. He has called us to remember what we have in Christ, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. And he has called us to know how we are to live in Christ, holy, new, honorable lives before a watching world. And God doesn't expect us to do this alone. No, he has given us other pilgrims, other exiles to, to do life with. He's given us one another and he has given his church shepherds. Shepherds to guide, guard, and give the church the nourishing grace of Christ and his word. And in our verses this morning, we're going to see that as Peter calls shepherds to account here. Now, I want to make a quick note. You may be thinking to yourself, uh, this is a sermon for pastors. It's not for me. This is a sermon for the whole church, shepherds and the pasture. So if you're taking notes, here is the, the big idea. Here's how Peter encourages the church under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit here. Here's the big idea. Good and faithful shepherds imitate the good and faithful chief shepherd. Good and faithful shepherds imitate the good and faithful chief shepherd. And in these verses, Peter makes this abundantly clear as he makes a pastoral petition. He offers a pastoral pursuit, and then he offers, he holds out a pastoral prize for the good and faithful. And that's really our outline in our time together this morning. We're going to look at the shepherd's petition in verse 1. We're going to look at the shepherd's pursuit in verses 2 through 3. And then we're going to look at the shepherd's prize in verse 4. Okay, let's dive in. Point 1, the shepherd's petition. Look with me at verse 1 once again. So I exhort the elders among you 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Bursting forth from behind every letter is the heart of its author. In voice, word, tone, turn of phrase, the heart of the author bursts forth. It's displayed. We see this in wartime letters written between spouses. We see this in letters between parents and children. And we see this in letters between pastors and members of the flock. That's what we see. And thus far in this letter, we have seen Peter's heart for the church as he has encouraged us like a friend, a coach, a parent, a preacher, a teacher. And here in our text, we see Peter, the encourager, turn his attention to shepherds of the church. He's speaking to the church as a whole, but he's specifically addressing shepherds within the church, elders within the church. And his word takes the shape of an appeal, takes the shape of a petition here in this verse, in this verse and then following. He's petitioning the elders of the church in Asia Minor and the church of today. He says, I exhort, I petition the elders among you. And it's key to note here a few things about that phrase, elders among you. First, the word elders is in the plural form. This is intentional. Peter isn't writing to an elder of the church. He's writing to elders. Peter assumes that the church is led by a plurality of elders, a plurality of shepherds. According to Peter, the church isn't guided by a CEO. Not by a man, but by men, faithful men. Second, the word elder and elders is the same word in the New Testament for pastor, for overseer, for shepherd. According to scripture, an elder is a pastor. A pastor is an elder. An elder is a shepherd. You, you get the picture. Third, I want us to double click on that phrase, among you. This is key to understanding the role of an elder and the church. God is calling elders to shepherd the flock among them. In context, Peter is not calling shepherds in Asia Minor to shepherd all of Asia Minor. Peter's calling shepherds to elder the flock among them. Members near them in their local flock, under, the, under their care and under their watchful eye. The Spirit's words to us in Hebrews dovetails here. In Hebrews 13, it says, Obey your leaders or shepherds and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be no advantage to you. Well, Peter then goes on to ground this petition, an established credibility in verse 1 as a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and as a partaker in the glory that is to come. First, he is a fellow elder. First and foremost, Peter wants us to know this. Peter wants the elders to know this, that he is a co-laborer. He's a co-laborer in the faith. In chapter 1 of the letter, Peter established that he is an apostle, 
He also included himself as an elect exile, one born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, covered by the blood of the Lamb, this is his identity. And here he is also making clear that he is a fellow pastor. See, flowing from who we are in Christ comes all that we do in and through Christ. Flowing from who we are in Christ comes what we do in and through Christ. According to Peter, these are inseparable. Peter is also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter is grounding his pastoral authority here and his pastoral petition in the fact that he witnessed the historical suffering of Christ. He was an eyewitness to his sufferings throughout his life, particularly his cross. The Apostle John grounds his letter similarly in 1 John chapter 1, which is, is where he says, speaking of Christ, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and we have seen with our eyes and have looked up and touched with our hands. Beloved, the life and death of Christ is not a fantasy. It's not a fantasy, nor is it a lie created by aristocratic elites of Jesus' day. Jesus isn't a metaphor. He's not an analogy. Jesus is a real human, truly God, truly man. He is the word made flesh who tabernacled among us. He lived and died in real time, in real history. And the Christian faith is held fast and held together in the historical truth of Christ born, Christ both lived, Christ crucified, and Christ resurrected. And we believe that he will return in glory, don't we? Amen. That's where Peter goes next in his petition. He states that he's an elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and three, a partaker in the glory to come. Peter is a pilgrim in motion with his eyes fixed on the glory of heaven. And we have seen this throughout the letter, and here he pulls the threads of glory together and reestablishes what he has already said in chapters 1 through 4, that he and all of those in Christ are partakers, co-inheritors of the glory that is coming on the day of Christ's return. See, Peter's encouraging us to recognize that we live between two glorious days, the day of Christ's first coming and the day of Christ's second coming. And he will return. Peter is exhorting elders as, as one who has grasped this truth. And he's exhorting elders to look toward that day with assurance and certain hope and to pursue, to pursue their good and faithful calling as shepherds of God's people. So let's, let's go to point two now and look at the shepherd's pursuit. And this will be my longest point. Look with me once again at verses two through three. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Right out of the gate here, verse 2, Peter appeals to elders to shepherd the flock of God, and he's not pulling this language out of thin air. He's not pulling this out of thin air. 
In Scripture, there is a long line of shepherds, isn't there? Maybe you're thinking of some now. Don't daydream too long. From Adam, whose role in part was to shepherd his wife in creation, to Abel, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Rachel, to Joseph, to David, to Amos, to Zechariah, to the shepherds that were told Christ has been born on the night of his birth. Shepherding is a core theme within the storyline of Scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And Peter's picking up that theme here in this passage. And he exhorts elder shepherds to shepherd the flock of God. Whose flock? God's flock. It's God's flock. The church belongs to him and to no one else. And there is not a single sheep nor shepherd, pastor, here on this earth, which he does not claim mine. And he is the senior pastor of the church who appoints in his stead under shepherds, pastor elders to guide, guard, and give his people his means of ever-present grace. And so what does it look like to shepherd, to pastor, to oversee God's people? What does a, a pastor, a good and faithful pastor look like according to the word of God? What does it look like to lead in the church? Well, in a rapidly changing world, there are rapidly changing views on what good leadership, good oversight is. And it's the same in the church, I fear, from the pastor to those in the pew. Uh, If we were to do a quick search in the great and powerful Google, a quick search, what is a pastor, the definitions... (laughs) Are, uh, are very malnourished, and it's, it's saddening, saddening. Just listen to this posting from a church looking for a pastor. Okay, I'm just going to give just a brief snippet of what they, what they put in the, in the what they're looking for section. We're looking for a pastor who will be responsible for creating an environment that welcomes new attenders and provides new steps toward connection to spiritual growth. Constructs practical on-ramps, groups, classes, etc., to help people move from attending to belonging and growing. Lead people in discovering their God-given shape and help them plug into a ministry. You'll champion the leadership development strategy for volunteers. Communicate clear vision and wins for volunteer teams on a regular basis. Recruit, train, and motivate volunteers to provide high-impact first impressions. Remove cringe factors from church experiences. Ensure that signage in key areas are clear, current, and focused on the new attenders. Create and continuously improve processes to ensure that new attenders are plugged in. Develop a systematic and effective effort to generate interest in groups and classes, sign-up areas, brochures, web page, etc. Oversee information and tracking for next steps being taken. Now, now not all of this is wrong. I, so don't, don't hear me wrong. I'm not, not all of this is wrong inherently, but Wow. We can't tell the difference between this, really, and a Fortune 500 profile need, right? A company, you know, that's what... It's devastatingly worldly. And sadly, here in our Western context, pastors are often driving under the influence of the world, wandering all over the ministerial road, intoxicated by what Peter says here, compulsion, pastoring uh, not out of love, but mere obligatory duty. 
greed, pastoring for financial, material, shameful success, or applause. Abuse. Pastoring in and in a domineering, authoritarian, heavy-handed way. And all we have to do is look at the news to see this sort of pastoring gone wrong. It seems like every other month we watch another pastor make a complete car crash of their life over foolishness, sexual misconduct, greed, spiritual abuse, or plagiarism. Now, no pastor is perfect. So I'm not saying, look at the pastors here compared to those out there. Uh, Though the aspiration and calling of a pastor is high, every pastor is capable of moral and spiritual failure, both small and great. And if someone wants a perfect pastor, then they can look no further than the cemetery because that man is in glory. But is bad and unfaithful leadership in the church new? Is this, is this new for the unhealthy to lead the unhealthy? No. Keep your hand in First Peter, but turn with me, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. <clears throat> Ezekiel 34, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God. Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. And they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord as I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and behold, my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the sheep feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths and they will not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So will I seek out my sheep And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out of the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountains 
And the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. They shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. In this text, the spirit through the hand of Ezekiel moves from words of aggressive rebuke of bad shepherds in verses 1 through 10 to words of glorious rescue in verses 11 through 16. Did you notice all the I wills there in the latter half of that passage? And who has done this work? Who is the fulfillment of that rescue? You can, you can yell it out. Jesus. Jesus, the good shepherd. He tells us this in John 10, 14 through 16. You don't have to turn there, but just listen to these words or maybe jot them down. John 10, 14 through 16. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not a part of this fold, I will bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Oh, beloved, Jesus is the good and faithful shepherd. He is the model for the shepherd's pursuit here in 1 Peter chapter 5. He is the fulfillment of the psalm that Pastor Jeff read earlier, Psalm 23. He serves and shepherds his people not under compulsion, but with compassion, doesn't he? We see this over and over again in the life of Christ, and we see this over and over again in the life of the church. We see this, and he does it willingly, even unto death. He serves and shepherds his people, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. As the one who came not to be served, but to serve by laying his life down for many. Laid his life down for his people. And he oversees his people in grace and in truth. And beloved, the good shepherd provides for his flock those he knows and those who hear his voice and he protects his flock with crook and conviction from wolves. And he has ultimately done this in the work of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the wolf of God's wrath came down from heaven seeking to to devour sinners but that wolf sank its fangs deep into the good shepherd Jesus for sinners like us. Jesus took the wrath of God against your sin and my sin as a substitute and good shepherd. He stood in the way for all those who turned to him in repentance and faith. This is what Christ has done for his people in his life and his death 
and his resurrection and his ascension. And when he said, it is finished, when he said it is finished, he put to death the wolf of God's wrath against sin for his people. And he put to death the wolves of the world, the flesh, death, and the devil. That is good news for the sheep of his pasture, right? This is what Christ has done for his people, for his church. All praise to him. And if you're here this morning and if you have questions about what it is to turn from your sin and turn toward Christ, toward the good shepherd, I'll be standing in the back after the service. I'd love to talk with you or you can ask someone in a row around you. They would be thrilled to tell you about this good news of Christ's life and death and resurrection for sinners like us. From Christ and all of his work, from, from his birth all the way through to his ascension. He gave shepherds, he gave pastors a model and their pursuit. And good and faithful shepherds imitate the good and faithful chief shepherd. And so God in this text is speaking plainly and directly to myself and to the elders of EBC. Brothers, may we pursue this sort of shepherding. This, this sort of shepherding that we see in the life of Christ. And may our pastoring imitate his pastoring as we uphold him as the good shepherd. May we faithfully and willingly and eagerly care for, sacrifice for, watch over, steward, love, guide, protect, feed, and shepherd God's flock here in this pasture. For we are called to shepherd and oversee God's people with the character of 1 Timothy 3, the doctrine and conviction of Titus, and the gentle and compassion heart of Christ in Matthew 11 and 14. God is calling us and all leaders, really in principle, all leaders to humble, healthy, flock-feeding leadership. We'll never perfect this. We'll never perfect this, brothers. But we can pursue it with the Lord's help. May we heed the Spirit's words. In this text, God also speaks to the flock, the members of EBC, those who have committed to Christ, to this pasture, and to the under-shepherds here at EBC. In chapter 4, verse 19, the Spirit, through the hand of Peter, says, entrust your souls to a faithful creator, to a faithful God. What does it look like to entrust your souls to a faithful God? Well, it looks like entrusting yourself to a faithful church led by faithful shepherds. That's what it looks like. It looks like committing to a local flock and committing to the shepherds of that local flock. Those who are shepherding, shepherding the flock among them. And I know that many have experienced church hurt from ungodly, obligatory, greedy, and domineering treatment from pastors or from other sheep in the pasture. And I know the pull to withdraw, to isolate, 
and to live in perpetual mistrust. But oh, beloved, oh, church, the only prescription for church hurt is a healthy church. And there is healing in the good shepherd and there is healing in his word and in his means of grace and there's healing in a church that's led in a healthy and faithful way. So entrust yourself to your faithful God and to your faithful church. Well, thus far we have looked at first the shepherd's petition. Second, we looked at the shepherd's pursuit. And now, third, let's look at the shepherd's prize. The shepherd's prize. Look with me at 1 Peter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Peter ends his petition to shepherds by holding out the prize that awaits them at the appearing of the chief shepherd. Pulling from here and other places in Scripture, here is what Peter wants us to grab a hold of. Here in this, just this one verse. Number one, Christ, the chief shepherd, is coming back. He will appear once again. Two, we will be held accountable for our lives, for our words and our actions. It says this in Romans 14, and it's assumed here in Peter's words. Peter wants shepherds and the whole church to know this. Third, there will be future reward for pastors and for Christians. And on that day, Christ himself forth. And on that day, Christ himself will be the ultimate prize. For we will dwell with him in unfading eternity. What grace and what hope is that? Don't you just love those words? Unfading crown of glory. There's been a lot of ink spilt uh, on what heavenly rewards uh, will look like on that day. And scripture speaks often of crowns, which I believe are, are a metaphor for the unfading glory that awaits us in eternity. And we could read of that unfading glory in 2 Timothy 4. James chapter 1, Revelation 2 and 4, and 1 Peter 5, right here in our text. But, but double-clicking on that language for a moment of an unfading crown, I want us to recognize that this language parallels Paul's words of an athlete training, exercising self-control in all things in order to run and complete the race that is set before them so that they might receive what? A wreath. A wreath of glory upon their head. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 9.25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. 
They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. That language is familiar, isn't it? From this letter. Beloved, we are in a spiritual race, heavenward, and an unfading glory awaits us. And we taste and see a glimpse of that glory now. Even as we gather together to feed on God's word by faith now in the presence and to, in, in, in the present and to sing praises to him. We're in a spiritual race heavenward. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about races. They're hard. They're hard. <clears throat> Just look at the life of the good shepherd. There is no crown of glory without first a crown of thorns. There is no glorification without present sanctification and endurance. And I believe wholeheartedly This is why Peter's holding out a prize to the faithful. Because ministry and life for every faithful Christian can be hard, right? The raise is hard. And the Spirit through this text wants to encourage shepherds and the whole flock, the whole flock in principle here, to persevere until the end and to fix our eyes on the day when the chief shepherd will appear. He's calling all pilgrim exiles, whether they are in the valley of the shadow of death or they are in the pasture lands of pure grace and joy, whether we are wandering in apathy, anxiety, anger, or animosity, or thriving in grace and peace, God is calling us who are so often unfaithful to look to him who is faithful. And to set our hope on the unfading glory that will come on that last day. And when that day comes, the shepherd and his sheep, the shepherds and their sheep, who have run the race by pure grace will hear the words, well done, my faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Go and stand with your good, faithful, and loving shepherd, the good shepherd now, and delight in the heavenly pasture land of never-ending glory and grace. The hymn writer, H.W. Baker, captures this so well. That day and the love of the shepherd and the beauty that both the flock and the shepherd looks toward, to, looks toward now in the present. It's in a hymn titled The King of Love. And this is, this is penned in 1868. 
I'm just going to close with these words. Let them, uh, let them wash over you. The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. Where streams of living water flow, my ransomed soul he leadeth. And where the verdant pastures grow, with food celestial feedeth. Perverse and foolish oft I strayed, but yet in love he sought me. And on his shoulder gently laid, and home rejoicing brought me. All praise and glory to Jesus. Let's pray. God of all sufficient grace, we ask that your word would plant itself deep in us, that we would not simply be informed by your word, but that we be transformed by it. And we ask that you would give us what we have not, that you would teach us what we know not, and that you would make us what we are not to the glory and honor and praise of our good shepherd, Jesus. It's in his good and faithful name that we pray, amen.